Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knutson had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host for today, Chris Knutson, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. And in today's episode, I talk with Kevin O'Byrne about changes, claims, and disputes in construction projects and professional services contracts. But before we dive into the civil engineering conversation, I want to take a moment and recognize our sponsor for the show, PPI. Now, if you're thinking about taking the civil FE or PE exam, I recommend that you check out PPI, the leader in civil engineering exam prep. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Just use promo code CIVIL at PPITOPASS.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, PASS.com. And use promo code CIVIL for a 20% discount. I want to introduce our guest for today's civil engineering conversation. It's going to be Kevin O'Byrne. He's a professional engineer licensed in New York and Pennsylvania with over 29 years of experience designing water and wastewater infrastructure. He's a principal engineer and manager of standard construction documents at the Buffalo, New York office of Arcadis, which is a global engineering and built asset consultancy firm with over 5,000 employees in North America and 30,000 worldwide. Mr. O'Byrne is an active member and past chair of the Engineers Joint Contract Documents Committee, or EJCDC, which you're going to hear much more about in this episode, and he's also a fellow of the Construction Specifications Institute. He's published over 25 articles and papers and numerous presentations on the topics of construction documents, capital project implementation, construction contract administration, and related matters. And he frequently serves as employer in a QAQC role and assists in resolving construction claims and related matters. So let's get ready to dive into the processes of changes and claims in this episode of the Civil Engineer Podcast with Kevin O'Byrne. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Okay, now it's time for this week's Civil Engineering Conversation where we're going to talk with Kevin O'Byrne about changes, claims, and disputes in construction projects and professional services contracts. And Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on here. And uh, this is a topic that I know that a lot of engineers, civil engineers that are out there are interested about, uh, and they're either interested about it because they're you know very much involved in the contractual piece of the business they're doing, or they're going to be, and they're, they're looking to try to build and develop their knowledge about this very these very important elements, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you to be able to lay out some of the basics that they need to know and they need to understand as they begin into that. So I really actually want to start with maybe more of a general question, and that is, is how have you been able to develop your experience in this area with claims and dispute resolution on projects? How did you get into this as an area of expertise? I'm not sure if I'd say it's an area of expertise, but it's certainly an area with which I'm experienced. And it would probably start out in, since most of my career has been spent doing design and construction contract administration, primarily for water and wastewater projects. I've never had a project yet that didn't have some kind of a change order on it. And uh, fortunately, I've had few that have had claims or uh, disputes. But uh, in my current capacity with Arcadis, I help many of our project teams that uh, have projects that have either gotten into some kind of a construction claim situation or, uh, in some more limited cases, a dispute. 
So really just uh, my case, close to 30 years of experience of uh, designing, serving in the construction phase, being a project manager, you inevitably see the ebb and flow of a typical construction project and how differing conditions during construction or changes in scope or other changes that occur during construction, how that translates into the beginning of a change order and uh, then the process may escalate from there. You're very humble about your expertise in the area. I know you've got a lot of years of experience uh, professionally, and, and you happen to also be involved with the Engineers Joint Contract Documents Committee. So can you tell us a little bit about what those documents are and where people can find out more information about those? The Engineers Joint Contract Documents Committee, or EJCDC, is an entity that's been around now for about 42 years. It's a joint venture of three sponsoring organizations in the U.S., the National Society of Professional Engineers, which was the founding entity, and the uh, American Society of Civil Engineers and the American Council of Engineering Companies. These three organizations partner together, provide budgetary support for the activities of EJCDC, and EJCDC's mission is to produce standard contract documents for various forms of project delivery, and for professional services contracts. EJCDC documents are primarily used largely on uh, engineer-led construction, engineer-led projects, and are arguably the predominant standard form of contracts for uh, public works, engineer-led public works in the U.S. I've been involved with EJCDC since about 2008. My predecessor in my position became involved with EJCDC back in 1976. So uh, it was just kind of a, a continuation of my role here at Arcadis. What we'll do on the show notes for today's episode, we'll provide some links for folks to be able to go out and get to those documents. I'm familiar with them out on the NSPE site. I would assume that they're probably out on ASCE and ASEX as well. There's uh, probably the single best place to direct folks to would be www.ejcdc.org. Let's dive a little bit more into details here on changes, claims, and disputes. And I think maybe one of the first things I'll ask is what are the basic differences between changes, claims, and disputes in a construction project? Because most that are listening have certainly heard of these terms, but it'd be, it'd be good to kind of set a foundation for what the actual definitions and differences are between these. Basically, it's a single issue, and it depends on where it is and its journey on the path. A project change will start out with some kind of uh, issue that uh, commences it, whether it's a differing site condition or a change in scope or some kind of a delay. And as the parties, with the help of a design professional, such as an engineer or an architect, attempt to mutually negotiate a uh, amicable solution to that, that's what we're calling a change issue. When there's a substantive disagreement between the parties, the issue can escalate to become a claim. If the claims resolution process is not successful, then the issue will become a dispute, and uh, the final methods of dispute resolution are set forth in most contract documents, and probably some of the most common types would include things like mediation, arbitration, or litigation in a court. Thank you. And so kind of building on that, I know there's, I mean, each one of these has a different process or we'll call it just kind of a typical procedure that they go through. I'm just going to presume here that most of the listeners on the on today's episode have a lot of experience or have some experience dealing with change orders. So I'd be interested to hear 
your take and your perspective on what the typical change order process should look like or does look like? Well, first off, uh, the contractor is ultimately going to submit something which I'll call a change proposal, which is their written proposal to the owner and to the uh, engineer setting forth the proposed changes, effects on price, and the contract times. This change proposal might be submitted directly by the contractor, or it might originate or arise from proposal request, a written document prepared and sent out by the engineer. And a proposal request is going to outline what is the contemplated change. It might be two sentences worth of uh, description, or it could be sending along half a dozen additional drawings and spec sections. So ultimately, the contractor prepares the change proposal. It usually has a detailed breakdown of price and some statement of the effect on uh, how long it will take to complete the work, How that if that change will affect the contractor's ability to complete the work within the contract times. And usually the owner and contractor together with their engineer or architect will uh, work to negotiate a, a change, which is ultimately culminates in a change order signed by the parties. Most of my experience uh, resides in, in project and program management is, you know, getting back to the project management triangle of, of scope, cost, and schedule, which is so important on a project. As a project engineer, project manager, in your experience, what are a couple of things that they can do to help reduce the potential for, not only for claims, but really for change orders on the front end? That's the earnest desire of every owner and design professional that I know. And uh, I'd say first and foremost is a good, solid set of construction contract documents, a design that's uh, thorough, complete, has gone through appropriate internal reviews at design professional's office, where the scope intended by the owner is well understood by both the owner and the design professional right from the get-go, and where there has been an appropriate level of site investigations, whether it's soil borings, investigations for the presence of hazardous materials, such as asbestos or, or other kinds of hazardous materials. And the more you know about the project site in advance, the less likely you're going to have differing site conditions encountered during construction, which is a very important cause of uh, change orders. A good, clear, concise set of contract documents and an appropriate level of site investigation is probably uh, the two most important elements to try to avert the occurrence of changes and claims. I think it's it's been a site investigation, so the, the issue of unforeseen site conditions that have driven most of the... Uh, change orders and the claims that I've been involved with as an owner's rep. Definitely doing the due diligence in the front end can be really important. Let's say you're an owner representative or even a design professional. What do you think are some good ways of knowing when a contractor is submitting a claim instead of merely just attempting to try to you know, continue negotiating an associated change order? When the change order process is unsuccessful, then either party, either the owner or the contractor, may elect to submit a claim. I've helped out a lot of project teams over the years with uh, claims resolutions, and usually the first step is that it's unclear right from the very beginning whether or not it is in fact a claim or whether the contractor is just attempting to continue negotiating the change order. So if you're uncertain as a design professional who's on the receiving end of one of these, the first thing to do is to pick up the telephone and call the contractor or whichever party is filing the claim. Owners can file claims too, although it's probably less common, and say, is this a claim in accordance with the claims procedures of the contract documents? And if it is, 
then one of the things that the claiming party should uh, prepare and send is a follow-up letter, which clearly indicates this is a claim in accordance with paragraph number whatever of the general conditions of the contract, citing whichever provision of the general conditions is where the claims procedures are. So if the contractor or the claiming party doesn't make that clear that it's a claim, then I think it's incumbent upon the engineer to realize it might be a claim and to force some kind of a statement as to whether it is or is not. In some of my own recent experience, just in recent months, we had one submittal that looked an awful lot like a claim, but it turned out it wasn't, and another one where the opposite was true, where it seemed like it was more of a change order proposal and then the contractor actually was intending it as a claim under the general conditions. So in both cases, we promptly contacted the contractor and were able to determine and get from them a statement in writing stating whether or not it was or was not a claim. And I think you gather from that, the key here is not to just assume that what you have in front of you is a claim. If there's a question, it's literally to you know, use communications, basic communications here, and drive a, a two-way conversation with the contractor to make sure that it's very clear up front on what is being expected with regards to then going back into the actual contract language itself. So it's very important. As a design professional, in your mind, what are some effective ways of handling a construction claim? First off, it's under clear communication. I can't emphasize that enough, and probably a number of engineers and architects probably ought to be able to write and communicate better than they do. We're taught a lot about science and numbers in college, but uh, we could probably all use a little bit more practice with uh, appropriate writing. So communicating effectively verbally and in the written form is important, terribly important in resolving a claim. Understanding what's driving the claiming party, understanding the limitations of their authority, and overall fostering throughout the entire construction project an atmosphere of compliance with the construction documents, which is intended to give some consistency, some predictability to how change issues and claims will be viewed and how they'll be handled, especially how the contractor perceives that. Over the years, I've spoken with many contractors, and they say when a certain engineer's team handles projects, they don't know what they're going to get because they leave things sort of loosey-goosey and uh, make up requirements as they go along. And contractors uh, rightfully complain about that because it, they don't know how to price the next project for that client. So if you properly and consistently interpret the contract documents based on what they actually say rather than perhaps what you hope they say and um, have a consistent approach to how you handle construction phase issues. Contractors will know how to bid on the project and everything will be a little bit more even-handed. I think the opportunity to make it less contentious and a little more, well, engineering-like is afforded when you take this approach. Like I said, if you just sort of relax certain procedures on a frequent basis and then get uh, unusually stringent about others or perhaps even almost make up procedures in other cases where it suits the design professional, then contractors really don't know what to expect. Prices bid to the owner will go up higher and there'll probably be an increased frequency of change issues and claims. Consistency and communications are vitally important because just from my own experience, if you express both of those communications consistency, but you're at least reducing risk on behalf of the contractor because they know what to expect. 
less assumptions equal a more even footing when it comes to the uh, to the bid process. That's great. I guess I'll ask a, kind of another question that's kind of building again here on dealing with claims. And, and so is, can a formal claim on a construction project be resolved before parties have to go out and, you know, retain attorneys, prepare for mediation, litigation, or some other dispute resolution process? In fact, that's the goal of the claims process. As I uh, advise various project teams, this is probably your last chance to uh, bring the issue to a successful conclusion before it gets into the dispute stage. At the dispute stage, there's usually a number of other parties that haven't been involved in the project that are starting to become involved, attorneys, possibly uh, other types of consultants such as forensic schedulers, claims consultants, and so forth. And so the claims process is really the last chance for the parties who started out on the project to really resolve it successfully among themselves and ultimately conclude that claims process most likely with a change order. So to that end, I usually advise engineers that are assisting a client with a claims resolution is that one of the issues from which the claim arose is potentially an allegation that the design wasn't good enough or that there was conflicts or errors or omissions in the design professional's construction documents. It's, I think, somewhat natural for the uh, design professional to get defensive about that. But again, this is the last chance to solve the matter properly before it gets really expensive to do so in the dispute resolution process. So trying to arrive at what's the, the fair truth of the matter to determine the, the basic facts of contractual entitlement via the claims process is the goal of the claims process, and it certainly can be successfully resolved to the mutual satisfaction of both parties via the claim. It doesn't always work out. Once in a while, one party is uh, either greatly behind its budget and it's uh, hurting financially on the project, and they feel they have no recourse but to file a, a lawsuit to try to seek the full amount of the compensation that they're seeking. But in many cases, the matter can be resolved by a claim because few owners and contractors truly want to be retaining legal counsel and uh, going into a courtroom, which is the next step after the claims. Let me think, you know, really at the end of the day, our goal is to resolve issues at the lowest possible level. I grew up professionally in the public sector, in the Department of Defense, and, and I was always told in the military that, you know, on any issue or conflict or whatever it was, that you figured out how to solve that problem at the lowest possible level, because the higher it goes, the more people are involved, the more, quite frankly, the more painful it becomes. So, Kevin, as you're mentioning, if you go through the opportunity to be able to resolve it at the project level before you get into bringing attorneys in and mediation and litigation. It's amount of resources that go into that is, is pretty substantial. So you're absolutely right. Trying to take care of these issues. One of the things that people, engineers and even some owners that haven't gone through this process before might not realize is that it's easy to say mediation or arbitration or going to court is expensive, but in what way? Well, first off, Attorney's fees are not cheap, and uh, both sides are going to be hiring legal counsel even just to go to mediation. The next step is that there are court costs if it's being litigated. There's the costs of the fees of the mediator or the cost of the fees of a disputes review board, which is another method of uh, dispute resolution. So all these things bring extra people, costs, procedures into the mix, and uh, it really ramps up the uh, – not only the cost and where does that money come from, but it also ramps up the stress level. It frays relationships on projects, and it's certainly a, a dispute is uh, in a construction project is certainly something for everyone would probably prefer to avoid if they can. 
there's tangible and intangible costs. And, and quite frankly, the, the bottom line is it's expensive. And if you even want to hear more about that, go listen to episode 26 with Ken Strongman, an attorney, where we discuss you know, how to resolve conflict in civil engineering projects. We go through this process of mediation. We talk through it. It's not an inexpensive process, uh, both in time and money. So something that obviously you're going to want to be working to try to avoid uh, through clear communications and, and consistency. Would you be able to maybe just review for us how on, on a given project, a particular change issue might progress from, let's say, a claim and then go to uh, and escalate itself up to a dispute? What does that process look like? A short bit ago, one of our questions, we talked about how the change issue originates and ultimately the contractor prepares a change proposal, submits it to the design professional, and there's negotiations about the effects on price and time. At some point, if those negotiations do not prove successful, that the parties aren't able to reach an amicable change order, and often in most contracts, uh, there's not a particular time limit on that process. The most recent edition of the EJCDC's uh, standard construction documents, there is some time limits on the change process in an effort to move the process along in an orderly way so that issues get resolved as they occur. Sometimes the change order negotiation process can take quite a while, but at some point, if it's not successful, there is some kind of final letter, perhaps from the engineer to the contractor saying, this isn't what you're seeking here. You're not entitled to it under the contract documents. That's not a differing site condition, or that was already included in the contract documents. You're not getting paid more for it. And at that point, an aggrieved contractor can either elect to try to continue the negotiations, possibly seeing a point of diminishing returns, or then file a claim. A claim is going to be usually a little more involved in writing than a uh, just a simple change request, change proposal. The A claim is the general conditions of the EJCDC and the American Institute of Architects say that entity filing the claim has a responsibility to support and substantiate its claim. So claims sometimes may have hundreds of pages of backup documentation and a, a fairly thorough narrative that probably takes a fair amount of time to prepare. And then it needs to be properly evaluated and negotiated between the owner and the contractor. The current edition of the American Institute of Architects claims process has an entity called the initial decision maker who effectively sits as a, a judge and jury in determining entitlement on the claim. Much of the time, that's the architect. The current edition of EJCDC standard construction documents says that a, a claim is to be negotiated directly between the owner and the contractor, probably between higher level individuals of the owners and contractors organization. If the claims process, which has a uh, normally has a time limit on it, if that fails to reach an amicable solution to which both parties can agree, I often tend to say that it's concluded successfully when both parties are dissatisfied but don't want to carry on the fight any longer, that at that point then uh, one party who might be dissatisfied with the outcome of the claims process may then file for whatever the contract form of dispute resolution is. And so just kind of as a follow-up, Kevin, you've mentioned the initial decision maker. This is even for myself. Who typically determines this and who is it typically? Is it a do they have a specific pedigree as they come into it? You mentioned the architect, but let's say you're in a pure engineering project and there's no architects involved. Is this an outside mediator or who are we talking about? In its 2007 edition of its uh, standard contracts, the American Institute of Architects invented the entity called the initial decision maker. 
there's a space in the owner contractor agreement of the AIA where the parties can indicate whether the initial decision maker is going to be some third party who I guess is mutually agreed upon by the owner and the contractor, or if they just want to say it will be the architect, the project architect. In the 2007 and earlier editions of EJCDC standard contracts, there was a very similar process. It's just that the entity determining entitlement and the claim was simply the engineer. It wasn't called initial decision maker. But both the current edition of the AIA documents and the prior editions of EJCDC basically set up that what was normally the design professional as the entity that was supposed to act as a project neutral in a claim and to uh, impartially determine entitlement. This would be a challenging situation for any design professional when uh, the owner who pays the design professional's bills might be expecting that the design professional look a little more favorably upon the owner's position. And uh, it's not unusual for a claim to arise from alleged design deficiencies. And of course, I think it's somewhat natural, perhaps unfortunate, but still nevertheless natural for a design professional to be defensive about whether or not this change or claim arose because they weren't good enough in preparing the construction documents. So the current claims process of EJCDC, which eliminates having an initial decision maker, having the engineer in between the parties and trying to pretend to be a neutral, I think is a little more effective and uh, allows the engineer to continue to represent its client, the owner, without a perceived conflict of interest. A couple, maybe I'll just, I'll call these perspective questions here looking at it from the perspective of the design professional, the bidder, and the project owner. So the first one is a question that really has to do, I guess, from the perspective of the design professional. And that would be what type of contract language should send off alarms or set off alarms for a design professional that they're looking to avoid an unusual level of risk in a construction project? First off, having to certify that certain conditions exist for an owner to uh, terminate the contract or having some unusual level of obligation to control the contractor's work. In the uh, design professional's own agreement with the owner, there might also be provisions on claims and disputes in the professional services agreement. You just want to try to avoid uh, signing a contract in which the owner, who's one of the parties to the disagreement, is the entity that determines entitlement. I've seen some non-standard contracts where the owner sets itself up, whether in its contracts with its design professionals or with its construction contractors, where it says, and the owner will be the one that determines what the final solution is, which is uh, could be construed by some by the claiming party as the fox guarding the hen house to a certain extent. I think really to stay as a lasting solution that both parties can actually agree to, it needs to be something that they mutually agree upon rather than an imposed solution. Let's switch perspective here now and go to that of the bidder or the construction contractor. What type of contractual language is going to be of concern regarding changes, claims, and disputes to them? First off, uh, similarly, whether or not the owner is setting itself up as the entity that determines entitlement in a claim. And secondly, uh, extremely short timeframes by when a claim should be submitted. I've seen some contracts where, non-standard contracts where, have language that say the contractor shall submit their claim within three days of the event giving rise to the claim. Half the time, a contractor doesn't even know when he should be in a claim situation that fast. Many of the standard contracts, such as EJCDC or AIA, allow 30 days for the initial notice of the claim and then another 30 days to submit the full documentation of the effects on price and time, which strikes me as a little more reasonable. So the contractor is uh, in a contract with extremely short timeframes by which they 
would need to submit a claim. That's also something that should uh, set off some warning bells. We're kind of covering the perspectives here. I'm going to go to the next one, which is now that of the owner's viewpoint. What type of contractual terms are going to help protect the owner's interests when it comes to changes, claims, and disputes? Well, I just think a fair allocation of risks all around and having a design professional that is going to administer to them completely and fairly. Now, there are some clients, some owners who may hold an unfortunate attitude that what's fair is when they win all the time. And that doesn't always produce the best business climate. Owners might not be aware of the fact that uh, if their projects are administered too consistently on an unfair basis, that uh, contractors that continue to do business with them will start to increase the prices that they bid to those owners to account for that risk factor. In the end, the owner's paying the money one way or another, whether or not they realize it. They'd be trying to have their projects and contracts be, uh, in my opinion, as fair as possible and to allocate the risk to the party best able to control that risk. That will result in fewer changes in claims compared with a contract that is uh, has unusual risk allocations that are sort of more one-sided. You've got an extensive level of experience dealing with contracts and claims and disputes. What's it like on a project when an issue becomes a claim and then escalates into a dispute? What does that feel like? It becomes very stressful. The project engineer may have a little bit of trouble getting to sleep at night and wake up in the morning thinking, oh, no, I've still got that thing to take care of today, especially when there's a bunch of lawyers uh, poking their nose into many pieces of your correspondence and having you other people second-guessing every decision that seems to have been made on the project or why did you phrase this email in that way. It's very stressful, and it seems like it will probably never end. I've seen some project engineers uh, caught in these types of projects where they just seem to have a black cloud over their head all the time, understandably so. I think it's important for management at those kinds of companies to uh, provide those younger engineers with the necessary support and encouragement and expertise of senior staff in order to help them get through this properly and with the uh, correct level of risk for the firm itself. Kevin, just kind of a follow-up on this one. I mean, obviously, nobody wants to, no project engineer wants to end up in that type of an environment. But I'm kind of in the mindset of, you know, better to be safe than sorry. And uh, I guess borrowing a Boy Scout terminology, be prepared. What are some tips that you might share for a project engineer, things that they might want to do to put themselves in a really good position that if they end up in a dispute situation, that they've got the right documentation, that they've been doing the the right paperwork issues in order to be able to better mitigate the risk that they may be uh, exposing not only themselves, but their company to. Understanding fulfilling their contractual obligations, both the obligations under their professional services contract with the owner, as well as their obligations under the construction documents, and hopefully those two are coordinated. So understanding what those say and fulfilling them. All too often, some of the, if you will, fine print of the construction general conditions is something hardly anybody on a project seems to read, and it's really important information that anybody implementing a project should certainly be familiar with. Following the contractual procedures is first and foremost proper oral and written communications and uh, trying to avoid a defensive attitude, especially if the contractor is insinuating or directly asserting that the cause of the change or the claim is errors and omissions by the engineer. Just try to keep it clinical 
When in doubt, take the high road. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our CE Hot Seat segment, which in today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, PPI. Engineers often ask me what exam prep materials or review courses they should use in preparing for the FE or PE exam. And hands down, I recommend PPI. Now, I personally use PPI's materials to pass my exams. And I recently had a chance to demo their civil FE and PE review courses. It's why I feel confident recommending PPI for those of you planning to take the next step in your career. So PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. You just need to use promo code CIVIL at ppi2pass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com. And use promo code CIVIL for that 20% discount. Okay, Kevin, to close up today's interview, I've got two final questions for you. And the first one is, what's a good general resource you might recommend for engineers to go to, or maybe even a book where they can obtain more information and increase their knowledge about contracts? Well, two things. First off, become familiar with what are the uh, standard general conditions that are in common use where you work whether it's EJCDC or AIA, if you're in the U.S., and depending on what type of construction you're in. So really be familiar with that first and foremost. A good general reference book that covers the project delivery process, different elements in relating to project conceptualization, design, projects procurement stage, and construction, including overviews of the changes, claims, and disputes processes would be the Construction Specifications Institute's Project Delivery Practice Guide. CSI also has uh, some cousin books that go with the Project Delivery Practice Guide. One of them is called the Construction Contract Administration Practice Guide. Another one is called the Construction Specifications Practice Guide. They're all very good resources written in plain English. They discuss the contractual obligations under AIA and EJCDC documents. And like I said, they do include sections that cover changes, claims, and disputes, as well as other aspects of the project delivery process. Okay, brilliant. And we'll make sure that those are all linked up on the show notes for today's episode. So you can go there and you can click on the link and I'll take you right to CSI's website, as well as the other ones that, uh, that Kevin just shared with us. Kevin, I've got one final question that I want to share with you and and ask you. It's the one that we ask all of our guests on the show, and it's the civil engineering career elevator advice question. So if you got into an elevator with a civil engineer, let's say you had 30 or 40 seconds with him or her and had to give them career advice in that short period of time, what would it be? It would be to, uh, assuming that you're in the process of delivering capital projects, to uh, develop your writing and communication skills and to uh, understand the contracts that bind you and those involved on your projects. There's a lot of things that flow out of that, but those are two basic precepts. There's a number of engineers and architects out there who could probably do a little bit better job at both. That's brilliant advice, and I appreciate that. And I want to really thank you again for coming on the show and uh, and sharing your insight and and your knowledge with us. Where can our listeners learn more about you or about your company? For my uh, employer, they can check out www.arcadis.com. Certainly encourage folks that are uh, engaged in engineer-led construction in the U.S. to check out the Engineers Joint Contract Documents Committee at www.ejcdc.org. 
Thanks, Kevin. And please remember, you can find all the show notes for this episode at SimilarEngineeringPodcast.com. Just go to that website, look for episode number 55, and there you're going to find a summary of all the key points that Kevin and I discussed in today's episode, as well as links to all the resources, the websites and the books that both he and I mentioned during the show. Just head over to CivilEngineeringPodcast.com and go ahead and look for episode number 55. And you can also leave Anthony and I questions in the comment section of the episode or go visit the Ask Us tab and leave a comment there. We look at all those comments. In fact, we enjoy getting those comments. So if you leave us one, you're going to get a response. So until next time, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success. 